You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, I'm joined by a close friend and colleague, Beth Cameron, Vice President for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, NTI, and former Senior Director at the White House, the National Security Council, Senior Director for Global Health Security and Biodefense. Thank you, Beth, so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. There's a great sense of urgency and priority in the United States and across the world in finding a safe and effective vaccine. It's a gargantuan enterprise. It's an enterprise that is highly nationalistic. That should not be surprising. This is a planetary pandemic that has crushed the economies and created health crises in virtually every country in the world. It's really been an existential moment for every country. And so we shouldn't be necessarily surprised at a strong nationalist, let's look after our own in the first instance response. It's been made, I think, worse in some respects in the emergence of this intensified U.S.-China strategic confrontation in which the race for the vaccine is embedded in what is a pretty unraveling relationship between these two superpowers. As we'll see in the course of this conversation, the race is a very fragmented race in many different ways, and it's one that is shrouded in deep uncertainty And it's one in which science is at the very front edge of this, as well as politics, and trying to figure out the mix is a very difficult and complicated task. Public trust here and elsewhere, a big issue because of the urgency. Speed has become very, very important. This is highly experimental, and we're still at an early point, and we'll talk a bit about what that all means. So I'm gonna ask Beth to kick things off here this race for a vaccine is a monumental, it's a, it's world's biggest historical moment in science and medicine, if not the biggest. Is that a fair description, Beth? And if so, what's at stake? So thanks, Steve. I definitely think that's a fair description. I think it's fair to say that in the timescale that we have for coming up with one or more vaccines that will vaccinate enough of our population to achieve herd immunity, and that's 7 billion doses for the world, at least 5.5 billion doses to get 70% of our population vaccinated in 12 to 18 months. This is a huge, huge challenge. And as far as I'm aware, nothing on this timeline has ever really been attempted. Um, There are over 200 uh, vaccines, as you mentioned, in development with at least 16 being tested in humans. They come from all over the world, including the United States, China, Europe, Australia. Success is going to require multiple vaccine candidates, billions of dollars that will need to be invested simultaneously, not only in research and development for the vaccine, but also to side by side come up with manufacturing processes for candidates, including candidates that might not even be the winners in order to save time. It will require an intense discussion about regulatory frameworks, how to have confidence between people all over the world, different governments and the general public to be interested and able to utilize a vaccine uh, from another country and be sure that it is, at the end of the day, safe and effective. 
So this is an absolutely monumental task, and it will require one of the largest amounts of cooperation and coordination that we've ever seen in global science and technology. You know, when you ask people the question, how much do we think this is going to cost? You get quite a range of estimates, 25 billion on the lower end, 65 billion, 100 billion on the upper end. People say, yes, in this instance, so much is at stake that we have to get those that are developing the vaccines to build the manufacturing capacity and begin the production and pay for it ahead, even without knowing whether that vaccine is going to be usable. This is also incredibly expensive and so unusual. Why do we have such a huge span of of uncertainty and estimated costs here, do you think? Well, I think one of the main things that we don't really know is we don't know a lot about which candidates are actually going to work. And so that means that just a lot of research and development into multiple types of vaccines. So not just having multiple countries involved, but different kinds of vaccines. So maybe I'll take a step back and talk a little bit about what actually has to happen to get a vaccine developed. So uh, first and foremost, what we're trying to do here is to create an immune response to a component of this virus, the SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, and to be able to create a lasting immune response. And usually when you start research and development for a vaccine candidate, you are learning a lot about what would make your immune system create antibodies. And we're learning. Um, In the case of COVID-19, we haven't had a lot of time to study how this disease works, this new disease that has just emerged on planet Earth in humans. We don't know a lot about the human body's immune reaction to it. So there's a lot of research that's happening to understand that while we're developing these vaccine candidates at the same time. What we've drawing on primarily here with vaccine development for SARS-CoV-2 are some previous investments in vaccines that have been smartly made um, in the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus SARS and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus MERS. Tell us a bit more about, like, what is the diversity of the vaccines? We have experimental ones. We have more traditional ones. We also have this sense, not just in the United States, but across the world, that fast is possible. How fast? Less clear, but certainly many others are thinking at Oxford, AstraZeneca, the Chinese, others are saying we're going to be we're going to get there really, really fast. Just quickly tell our listeners how to think about this envelope of possibilities of vaccines, but also what is it today that gives people confidence that we can operate with us a level of speed that we've never seen before? I mean, the fastest vaccine that was developed before was mumps four years, right? 1963 to 67. Typically, it's more like 15, 20, 25 years. So if you could just explain that for us, please. So the world right now is placing a huge bet that we're going to be able to develop vaccines for COVID-19 in a much, much shorter period of time than we've been able to develop vaccines in the past. And the reason for this is that we're looking um, simultaneously at a number of different types of vaccines. So we're looking at older technology vaccines that have been grown in live form and inactivated chemically or weakened in another way. Um, These vaccines have been approved and are staples of vaccine production, but they can take a while to grow and manufacture. 
On the other hand, uh, we are investing heavily in new technologies, including DNA and RNA vaccines, where genetic material to code for a piece of the virus, like the spike protein, um, is directly put into cells um, to mount an immune response. And these types of vaccines um, have not been used uh, traditionally in the past, but the bet is that if we can uh, find a safe and effective DNA or RNA vaccine, that it'll be able to be produced in large amounts much more quickly. There are other vaccine types that are also being explored, vaccines that are deployed by cold viruses. One of the reasons that we think that this is going to be faster is because there's just a multitude of different types of technologies being deployed. What that's going to require in order to be able to produce something on the other end that's safe and effective is a large investment and coordinated investment globally in vaccine production so that while we're developing the technologies, we're also figuring out how to produce these different types of vaccines, even vaccines that ultimately aren't successful. So it's a moonshot approach. It's a manufacturing approach. It's a multiple different type of technology R&D approach. And we'll also need just a major amount of joint coordination, especially between regulatory agencies, in order to make this all come together. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening here in the United States, Operation Warp Speed. This is really the embodiment of a Manhattan Project-style effort. We haven't seen anything like this in public health since 60 years ago when there was a crash effort on polio vaccine. Operation Warp Speed, launched by the White House, in the spring, there's no single document describing what it is and how it operates, but various press accounts and comments have made very clear sort of what its core mission is, and we'll get to that. Its short-term mission, roughly within the next year, to develop new private-public partnerships in an effort to accelerate the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. They really want to have something ready by the end of this year, by early next year, uh, in some volume to use in America. Uh, the initiative is, is jointly between HHS and DOD. That's novel. DOD has been brought in from the Army Material Command, and that's on the supply distribution uh, across the United States. HHS has at its disposal roughly $10 billion in resources, six and a half for BARDA on the development of these new bets, um, and another uh, $3 billion around field trial support through NIH. Um, and a, someone from industry, a prominent figure from industry, Monsef Salawi, out of formerly GSK, has been brought into sort of selecting out what are the most promising candidates and moving aside. I want to say that it's very important to understand here, and this gets back to the speed issue, that the U.S. is extremely advantaged over other countries in this vaccine race due to our expertise at BARDA, at CDC, and at FDA. Uh, we have a very robust institutional apparatus that can invest upstream, that can expedite the regulatory process, and invest substantial financial resources in R&D, more so than really any other country in the world. And that bet is based on that reality. There's another guiding premise that we hear in talking to people from Operation Warp Speed, is that by integrating the strengths across the government under a unitary and authoritative sort of structure that they can uh, move forward. You take that 10 billion, put it behind big bets. So far, 2 billion has been invested to ramp up production for the first three U.S. investments. And they're looking rep reportedly at building that out to a total of five to seven vaccine candidates that would receive this very heavy backing 
and move ahead. There's a couple of big issues that grow out of this. In the past, the U.S. would habitually lead and consolidate the global response, and that leadership was generally welcomed. And now we have something that's highly nationalistic and highly inward looking. In other words, Operation Warp Speed is a lead element of the Trump administration's answer to Americans on what he can deliver to Americans, and it's a lead element of a strategic competition with China. And it's not being defined as this is something that's going to serve a bigger, broader public good, although the president in statements has made clear his openness to that thought. But overwhelmingly, this is a nationalist America first operation, still to be determined whether it has broader benefits and broader leadership investments. Some have questioned whether the portfolio is too experimental and perhaps should have more traditional platforms. There's little transparency yet into how the, the Operation Warp Speed operates. We know there's a, there's a lot of fear that there'll be enormous political pressure as we head towards the November election to put pressure upon FDA to uh, issue an emergency use authorization for a vaccine before perhaps the safety and efficacy trials are complete or that there may be a rush that politics may overwhelm the science here. And that's been a source of great debate. We also know that there's concern about will Americans and other beneficiaries be open to use this? There's a question of public trust, public confidence. The controversy over the hydroxychloroquine going back to the FDA's approval under political pressure back in March, and then the revocation just recently when some of the scientific evidence came forward that has damaged trust and confidence. The anti-vaccine movement has become very active in spreading increasing amounts of misinformation and disinformation. So this is going to be a big issue. I just wanted to get back to Beth and ask, we know that we have to take this Operation Warp Speed very seriously, right? I mean, and why is that in your view? So Operation Warp Speed um, is basically the moonshot for the United States. And in one of the things that I just want to echo that you mentioned is how the United States um, so far has really been viewing the development of a vaccine and, and been talking about the development of a vaccine in a very U.S.-centric way. And so this is an important moment for the United States as we look to develop uh, different candidates. We have three phase three clinical trials to enroll at least 30,000 people around the country that are going to be kicking off in over the summer at different times with three different uh, vaccine candidates. We're not really sure uh, whether those candidates are going to show safety and efficacy. I think, you know, as we look towards what the best uh, case scenario would be, you know, Dr. Fauci has said that we could get to 100 million doses of one candidate vaccine by the beginning of next year. And I think that would be, you know, a huge win if we had a safe and effective vaccine candidate in the United States. Still, we'd be looking at uh, a third of our population. We wouldn't be uh, looking at that on a global basis. And I think we haven't yet had the conversation, certainly in the United States, and we need to have it around the world, about how we'll prioritize those vaccine doses and how we'll be looking at things like set-asides for healthcare workers and other essential personnel in the United States, but also around the world. And how has that typically operated in the past, Beth? And what would you expect 10%, 20% set aside? And what would the categories be for the first tier? 
So I think many experts have been calling now for a, a 5 to 10% set aside for healthcare workers, for frontline uh, responders, and also essential employees, hospital employees, as well as other essential workers. If you think about the folks that have had to continue to work throughout the COVID-19 crisis to make sure that our food supply is kept in order, that people can get groceries, um, that uh, people are delivering things to your house. So those kinds of workers, making sure that, that they can continue um, to operate um, safely. When we think about what we've done in the past, you know, during H1N1, the influenza pandemic in 2009, the U.S. actually pledged to share 10% of its vaccine um, with the rest of the world. And that wasn't specifically targeted for frontline workers, but it does give an indication of how we were looking at sharing with the rest of the world. And uh, so far, I haven't heard um, anyone in the United States talking about either of those two things at the governmental level. I think it would be absolutely critical to decide on both of those things and to be really clear about it um, in short order as we work towards a safe and effective vaccine here and with our partners around the world. Operation Warp Speed, if it were successful, what would success look like? And what would the most disappointing or complicated outcome look like? So the best possible outcome is that the United States um, does develop safe and effective candidates, ideally more than one. Um, also, that we start working much more collaboratively with our partners around the world, because I think it's highly likely that other countries, uh, including China, are going to have success in developing vaccine candidates as well. A disappointing outcome would be to rush safety or to in any way um, signal to the American people or to the global population that the vaccine was developed in such a manner that they can't trust it. Uh, because at the end of all of this, we can have all of the vaccine that we need, but if people don't want to be vaccinated or if they don't trust that it's safe and effective, we won't ultimately uh, be able to stop COVID-19 Another potential outcome is that we continue to learn more about this virus and that we, we actually aren't able um, to develop a vaccine that creates immunity for a long period of time. And I think that there again um, really underscores the need for strong communication, fact-based communication uh, with the American public so that they understand uh, what we're learning throughout these phases of clinical trial development when the results come in and so that we're really prepared for what will happen next. Because I think as much as we'd like to see success and as much as we're all hoping for success, we're really dealing with a disease here that has only been uh, in humans for the last six months. We could also, of course, face a situation where we're not being defeated in the efforts to, in the field trials and the candidates, but it's taking much more time to begin to differentiate the outcomes to know which are the truly promising. And there you have to go back and and argue to a very frightened and impatient public the need for much more patience. And that has consequences, obviously, for economic recovery. It has consequences for the, the demands that will be placed on governments around the world to continue to subsidize uh, folks and keep an economy on life support for an indefinite period, which, of course, we've seen is hugely expensive. So all of these outcomes around these trials have enormous implications politically, economically, in terms of public trust and communications. Let's talk a little bit about China. China's making a very big push. It's putting substantial resources. It's bringing forward its military enterprises, which are deeply involved in this. Uh, some of its state-backed firms. It's putting lots of cash behind. It has five candidates. It's tended, I think four of the five are inactivated 
uh, viruses. So there's very, very much more traditional uh, type of vaccine. It's important to note China has massive vaccine manufacturing capabilities. It also has a very large population, 1.4 billion people, to take care of in the first instance. When the U.S. announced its withdrawal from the World Health Organization, China pledged an additional $2 billion in support to respond to the coronavirus, but also to support vaccines and therapies. And it committed to sharing any successful vaccine with the world. We're expecting it's going to play a larger role in WHO, but all of the details of those commitments are still to be determined. There are a couple of issues that have come up traditionally when talking about China. There's the question of its rigor and standardization in its field trials, the dearth of information that's shared, the lack or the weakness of reporting on adverse events in these trials. Uh, this raises the question, if a Chinese vaccine comes forward under those conditions, will outsiders accept that vaccine? Or alternatively, are the Chinese trying extra hard right now to overcome those perceptions and share more data and publish their, their results prematurely in order to turn that around? The other issue is, of course, if the Chinese get to a successful vaccine early and they're talking about going into actual use of vaccines in the fall, They've made an announcement that one firm is intending to do that. It may still take a very long time to vaccinate their population before becoming open to the external world. Beth, tell us, what do you think under the scenario of China coming forward early with something that looks reasonably safe and effective? How's that going to play, do you think, politically in the world and with us? Well, I think, Steve, this is another reason why the United States really needs to be at the international vaccine table. And we really haven't been to date uh, very publicly um, in, in any uh, real way. We haven't been part of the pledging or the development of the ACT Accelerator. And China um, has, on the other hand, um, made this commitment to share vaccines. So I think one thing that could definitely happen is if China does develop the vaccine first, and you mentioned their plans in the fall and the launch of the phase three clinical trial. They're also testing vaccine, working closely with Brazil, because of course China doesn't have very many cases right now of COVID-19 in their own country. And so they need to work in testing their vaccine in places where the virus is actually circulating, like Brazil. So China's out in investing in building political goodwill and the United States is not. And I am worried that in a, in a scenario where China develops a vaccine first, we will have challenges um, with our population um, both accepting that vaccine, of course, because of the rhetoric. And I'm also worried that we won't have the regulatory conversations that we really need to have so that we, we can trust the safety and efficacy of a vaccine that comes from China and so that the, the rest of the world um, ultimately can start thinking about vaccinating um, the populations of people that really um, deserve a safe, effective, and equitable vaccine. So I think uh, my number one uh, concern uh, with the geopolitical challenge associated with vaccine development for COVID-19 is that the U.S. typically is in a leadership role. We're typically one of the, the loudest uh, countries talking about safety and efficacy and the ability to be able to trust the science. And without us at the table, I think that really sets back the whole conversation. Now, you referenced the ACT Accelerator. Let me just explain to our listeners. Right now, 
people are looking at, at what's happening in the world. The high-income countries, North America, Europe, and in Asia, are busy buying up access to future prospective candidate vaccines, locking in contracts for their own. They have the wealth, they have the deep pockets, they have the ability to do that. Middle-income countries, lower-middle-income countries are kind of on their own. I do see things like AstraZeneca making an announcement. It's working with Oxford University that it was committed to produce 2 billion doses. It's setting aside a billion through generic uh, manufacturing in, in India. It's going to Gavi, the vaccine alliance, uh, with 300 million doses for low-income countries. It will satisfy 300 million for the U.S., 100 million to U.K., another 300 million to other wealthy European countries. But that's more the exception. At the moment, what we're seeing is the U.S. and China driving a lot of this process. We see other countries doing this. But in terms of putting money on the table to, to nail down manufacturing and distribution, it's skewed very much in the direction of the high-income countries. And there's a, a, a great risk that low-income countries are going to be left by the side of the road or the back of the queue with a very, very long wait to get access to, to vaccines while the vaccines are going to wealthier countries. With If that's a three or four year gap, you can imagine what the consequences are in health and economics and the like. The ACT Accelerator was created and launched in April as a counterweight to that fear. It was established by WHO, the EU, Gates Foundation, with Global Fund, Gavi, CEPI, the Coalition Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Uh, and it was really there to try to mobilize commitments for vaccines, for therapies, for diagnostics, for low-income countries. It's had several different events, most recently one this weekend. It has estimated that there's a $18.1 billion gap in funds going in, in what's required for bringing vaccines to low-income countries over the next 18 months. That's a big gap. At the meeting, they didn't get much farther along in terms of getting substantial financial commitments towards vaccine purchases. They did get one commitment from the Serum Institute of India to produce 250 million doses. This is still an unproven institution, this ACT Accelerator. It operates with the norm of equity and access and fairness and transparency that the low-income countries should not be left behind. And it's motivated by the, the awareness that the more we have established networks for collaboration, the more we can encourage countries to exercise their better instincts. Beth, tell me, what do you think is required looking forward? This is a fragile nation uh, organization, what do you think is going to be required to make the ACT Accelerator truly impactful and successful? Well, I think the ACT Accelerator needs to be successful because we need a global coordinating mechanism for one of the biggest moonshots that's ever been put forward on, on planet Earth. But in order for it to be successful, all of the major partners are going to have to come to the table, including the United States, and agree on what the outcomes and uh, China and China yeah. absolutely and what what the outcomes need to be. There needs to be a conversation that is either in that discussion or hangs off of it about regulatory cooperation, 
between the countries developing vaccines. There needs to be a conversation about prioritization and how much vaccine is going to be pledged for low-income countries so that they're not waiting in line for three years en masse for vaccination. There needs to be um, a conversation about how vaccine is going to be deployed, recognizing that every country in the mix is going to be responsible for vaccinating its own population. There has to be some rational dialogue about how countries are going to prioritize amongst their populations while still making sure that others on the planet, especially frontline workers, healthcare providers, other essential personnel, can actually be protected. Otherwise, two things will happen. One, I think it will slow us down in developing a successful vaccination campaign because we know it's likely that we'll need more than one vaccine. And two, it's really the right thing to do. Um, We need to live on a planet where people around the world are not waiting three to five years while the most powerful and wealthy countries in the world are being vaccinated in one. So I think it's essential Uh, But it's going to require the U.S. and China to be at the table in a big way. Now, we know that this is a complicated proposition, getting the U.S. and China into the ACT Accelerator. These two countries have descended into recriminations, mutual conspiracy theories about one another. The unraveling of their bilateral relationship has reached a a nadir. You know, it's gone way beyond what people had estimated. And then you have the fact that WHO is corollary damage to this and the U.S. severing its ties with WHO and WHO is integral to the ACT Accelerator. So it's going to be tricky diplomacy to try and figure out a way to get the U.S. and China into the ACT Accelerator when things have become so overheated and so deteriorated in that U.S.-China relationship that strategic confrontation has paralyzed the U.N. Security Council, which has done almost nothing on this topic for good reason, as you might imagine. But I want to raise one other issue, which is, okay, the U.S. government has been arm's length from the ACT Accelerator. Ambassador Kraft did issue a statement at the summit, emphasizing the commitments the U.S. government has made in these areas of of response, of therapies, of vaccine development and diagnostics. So the U.S. was present, was present and participating through our ambassador to the U.N. uh, in New York. Now, A big decision point is approaching the United States in in the next few weeks. We have the the next major funding bill uh, for the response to the coronavirus. Congress has passed four and a half measures so far, putting $3 trillion into the domestic response and a small portion into the international. There is uh, the HEROES Act, which passed in the House, another $3 trillion, awaits a debate in July around what will be the new provisions going forward, most overwhelmingly around the domestic response. But there is debate today about what should be done exactly around this area of trying to ensure that low-income countries have adequate financing for vaccines and for the response. And I just want to note, in there is a proposal in front of the congressional leadership put together by U.S. Global Leadership Council put together by one campaign, Interaction, and many other experts calling for an $18 billion package, which would include $4 billion over a two-year period that would go through the Gavi Alliance for vaccine purchase and distribution to low-income countries, and another $4 billion through the Global Fund for the response in low-income countries, the immediate response in terms of test kits, tr- training, PPE, ventilators, 
uh, in low-income countries. Now, that's a huge opportunity to do something terribly important. If that were to pass, it would be con Congress, in effect, making an enormous contribution to the exact sort of aspiration that ACT Accelerator is putting on the table. ACT Accelerator is saying we need 18.1 billion. Others are saying maybe 16 billion over the next two years. But the point here is we need the major wealthy powers of the world stepping forward and making a commitment of this kind. That 4 billion over two years towards Gavi is estimated to be about a 25% share of what would be needed for Gavi to meet the needs for vaccines. So we may not be formally very much very active in the ACT Accelerator, but through actions taken by Congress on this next bill, we could become front and center in that response if we're able to act. And I do hope that happens. Beth, did you want to offer any thoughts on that? Only to say, Steve, that when we look back at some of the other epidemic and pandemic responses that have happened in the in the last decade, um, particularly the Ebola response in West Africa, it's unfortunate how we were working so closely with China during that response and were able to work through the UN Security Council. And I think that while it is obviously it's critical for the US to make a major investment in low income countries for vaccine development, for Gavi, but also in order to help them to be prepared to deal with the pandemic, this pandemic, as well as the next one, until and unless we, we have a vaccine. But I think that it also, we need to figure out how we can cooperate with China, because there's no scenario that I can imagine where the US and China aren't each developing and it's and hopefully successful in having vaccine candidates um, and working with partners around the world, not only on vaccination, but on preparedness. We have to figure out how to share our technical capabilities. We have to figure out how to share our regulatory conversations. And we're gonna have to figure out how to work together in order for us to ultimately uh, beat back this pandemic. We just have to figure it out. Um, and if we can't figure it out at the political level, we have to figure it out at the technical level between our scientists and our public health experts. I just want to remind everyone, this is still early days. We're still operating in high uncertainty. We still await data from these field trials, these human trials. And until we have that data, it's going to be very difficult to make judgments on what's the best and what's not. We are blessed, I think, that we have, as we talked about earlier, such a diversified portfolio of candidates over so many different countries with so many different scientific and research communities and industry foundations, international organizations, governments mobilized. And there's been a remarkable level of sharing of data, of protocols, of practices, best practices, of experiences. This is a period of much more open science than we've seen in previous eras. But it's also a period of great geopolitical fragmentation. One of my takeaways from this conversation is that's our single biggest threat today, is that not being able to navigate that. If we fall victim to that, we're going to have a very chaotic and very divisive set of outcomes that are going to leave us with some very, very unsatisfying outcomes. But I also want to end on a good note, and I'm going to ask Beth to do that for us. Beth, you're a very optimistic, but very pragmatic person and very realistic. But what gives you the greatest hope looking ahead? The greatest hope that I have looking ahead is just in watching how the S&T community, the science and technology community around the world has been harnessed 
on this global moonshot of developing a vaccine for COVID-19. And so the thing that makes me the most optimistic is just watching all of the work that's gone in, the, the pledging and the real hard work that's gone into developing manufacturing cap capacity while we're still developing vaccine candidates. I'm hopeful that not only will we get technology breakthroughs that ultimately allow us to end the COVID-19 pandemic, but that we'll be able to leapfrog some of the barriers that have been dogging us for years in vaccine and medical countermeasures development more generally. So I'm optimistic that all of these investments, if we use them wisely, if we coordinate them properly, and if we collaborate around the world, that these investments will pay off not only for this pandemic, but for all biological threats in the future. Thanks so much, Beth, for being with us today and for all the contributions you've made and continue to make. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.